for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. teaching text comes from Luke 6, uh, 17 through 26. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of God for the people of God. Y'all can be seated. So a new thing for me is, is what we're doing now, which is called preaching the lectionary. Uh, I announced that we'd be doing this at the end of November, and to preach the lectionary is effectively uh, someone else hands you a Bible reading plan or a preaching plan, and you preach what's handed to us. And so in the Anglican tradition, there are millions of churches, there are thousands of churches all over the world who are reflecting on this scripture this morning. What's great about this is it requires an exercise in trust and humility. Uh, you know, sometimes there, there are passages of Scripture that you just wouldn't pick. I'm probably not going to naturally pick the one that says, woe to you who are rich. Most sentences that begin in woe like that, I think, that feels like conflict. I would like to avoid that. But in, in coming to the Scriptures, it requires a teachable and a humble spirit. And so as we reflect on the words of Jesus today, we're going to receive words of comfort, but we're also going to receive words of challenge. And that is really what we sign up for because we're, we're coming to hear words of truth, and the truth always sets us free. And so as we gather around the Scriptures today, let's have open ears, let's have open hearts, consider in what ways the Spirit is inviting you into greater freedom as we meditate on the words of Jesus. It's really rich today. So a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were in Luke chapter 4, and Jesus had preached you know, his, his inaugural message. He's kicking off his ministry, and he relies on Isaiah chapter 61. You remember, he says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to, bring, to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to announce the year of the Lord's favor. And then in the following chapters, Jesus goes and he does this stuff. He, he gets to work. He heals sick. He exercises demons. He eats with sinners. And just before this moment in the text that Will read, Jesus calls his disciples. 
Well, actually what he does is there's a big crowd of disciples, and from among those, he picks out 12. And these are the ones that he's going to pour into over the next handful of years, and he names them as apostles. These are like my official representatives, my sent ones, my ambassadors. These are the people that Jesus brings to a level place, and he's here to teach them. The text begins saying Jesus looked at his disciples and then began, blessed are you who are poor. He's speaking to the disciples, to the apostles, but he's doing it in the context of this wider listening audience. People have come from all over the place because he's cast out demons. They've seen friends and family members have their lives drastically changed. He's healed people. He ate with an unlikely cast of characters, and people just found themselves dignified in His presence. And so from Tyre and Sidon, we're talking about modern-day Lebanon and, and, and Jordan, people came from all over the place to be with Jesus, to reap the benefits of His ministry. He's speaking to His disciples, but He's doing it in the context of this great crowd of people that are hoping to get some kind of handout or just want to be around this guy who's so magnetic and so magnanimous. And the scene itself is instructive. You can picture this this wide, flat land, the disciples around him and the great crowd surrounding Jesus. He assembles his students to instruct them in, in how to live as ambassadors of the kingdom of God. And he does it in the context of many who are not yet disciples, but who will be affected by their faithfulness or their lack thereof. And the same thing is true today. Whether they like to admit it or not, are not the eyes of the world always on the church, wondering if we're going to obey? And if they're not, could it be that's because we've trained them to doubt that we take seriously our Lord's teaching? People are always listening. Jesus begins this this teaching. It's often called the Sermon on the Plain in the the Luke version of it. You may know it in uh, Matthew's account, Matthew 5 through 7, as the Sermon on the Mount. I taught on this for nine months in 2020. No one remembers any of those sermons. (laughs) Nobody. Not my wife, not my mom. Nobody remembers those sermons because I preached them outside. But they were pretty good. You could go back. But this is a a shortened version of of the Sermon on the Mount. And and, in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 5, we've got eight or nine, depending on how you read it, Beatitudes, blessed are you kind of statements. Luke has four of them. But then he tacks on to it these, uh, these, these words of Jesus, these woes. And these blessings and woes can truthfully be a little bit uh, perplexing. How are we to understand what they mean? Blessed are you who are poor, but woe to you who are rich. Well, first, I think it's helpful to appreciate what uh, is not going on, what they don't mean. The blessings, those first four, or the first three of the four blessings in particular, are not a a glorification of poverty. Remember what Jesus said. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you'll laugh. We're going to explain what he is doing here, but he's not necessarily glorifying the state of poverty, as if to say, if you're a person who is poor, hungry, and weeping, you should just like buck up and feel good about yourself. I don't think that that's what Jesus is doing here. We're going to talk about what he is doing. The second thing that he's not doing is he's not offering a universal shame blanket to cover those who are rich, verses 24 and 25. 
Woe to you who are rich, for you've already received your comfort. And woe to you who are well fed now, for you'll go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. In terms of the blessings and the woes, Jesus definitely gets on to ethical instructions and commands as the, as the Sermon on the Plain continues. Uh, but, but here, Jesus is not yet advocating, really, for anyone to do anything. But what Jesus is doing in pronouncing the blessings and the woes is that He's describing reality. He's saying simply what already is true, that one's material well-being affects their response to the message of the kingdom. Think about that. One's material well-being affects their responsiveness to the message of the kingdom. Of course, this is not strictly true, and by that I mean there are poor people who who are unbelievers, and there are rich people who are faithful followers of Jesus. But Jesus is using this this hyperbolic contrast language to communicate that one's material well-being affects their response to the message of the kingdom. Uh, How many of you know the songwriter Regina Spector? Okay, she's really, she's really, really good. And uh, a couple of years ago, the song's probably 15 years old now, but she came out with this song called Laughing With. I thought for a second about trying to play it, but I didn't want to humiliate myself even further in front of all of you. And, uh, but this is a song that's based on this quote that there are no atheists in the trenches. The idea is if you're fat and happy, like it's easy to not believe in God, but if you're, you know, in the trenches of warfare and a bullet could take you out at any moment, you're sure crying out to God for your survival. And so in the song, she says, No one laughs at God in a hospital. No one laughs at God in a war. No one's laughing at God when they're starving or freezing or so very poor. No one laughs at God after the doctor calls after some routine tests. No one's laughing at God when it's gotten real late and your kid's not back from that party yet. No one laughs at God when their airplane starts to uncontrollably shake. No one's laughing at God when they see the one they love hand in hand with someone else and they hope that they're mistaken. No one laughs at God when the cop knocks at their door and they say, you've got some bad news, sir. No one's laughing at God when there's a famine, fire, or flood. But God can be funny at a cocktail party when listening to a good God-themed joke. When all the crazy say he hates us and they get so red in the head you think they're about to choke. But God can be funny when told he'll give you money if you just pray the right way or when presented like a genie who does magic like Houdini or grants wishes like Jiminy Cricket or Santa Claus. God can be so hilarious. Ha ha. It's a great song. You need to go listen. Why are the poor and the hungry and the weeping blessed? Well, it's because in their desperation, their eyes are looking up to God and out for help. Because their material poverty postures them to be ready recipients for the hope of the kingdom. They're not laughing at God. They're desperate for God. I think about friends of mine who work in the Middle East and North Africa and countries that are hostile to the gospel, who have lived through, in one country in particular, a decade of civil war, and they've called this the golden age of the church. You've got COVID, you know, going crazy in the country and civil war and and fighters coming in from the outside, and yet they're calling it the golden age of the church because 
in their desperation, they're crying out to God with a kind of passion and fervor that you can't readily replicate. Their environmental difficulties have fostered in them a spiritual hunger that I wish I had. And in that way, they are blessed. In some ways, the difficulties on the outside have removed hindrances or encumbrances to the message of the gospel that, they are, that we regularly experience on the inside. It reminds me of uh, friends who pastor in New York City. Very, very different uh, context, but they're not poor. But the environment they're in is in many ways antithetical to the gospel, antithetical to the message in the way of the kingdom. And so in a church gathering for worship and considering the teachings of Jesus, they're confronting the gods of commerce and the idols of American culture. And so when they gather for worship in a city where there's a minority of people who are evangelical Christians, there's a kind of passion and desperation that we don't have in places where we kind of safely assume that most people are Christian or at least friendly to Christians. Sometimes those, the change in the exterior reality changes the interior uh, posture of our hearts toward God. I don't know if y'all are reading along with the daily offices. Uh, we're now, I'm a day behind now, but we're, we're 44 chapters into Jeremiah. In, for, in Jeremiah 1 through 42, Jeremiah's like, y'all, repent, 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 repent. It's going to be consequential if you don't. And then in chapters 41 and 42, Babylon comes in, wipes everything down. And then in chapter 43, we're like, Jeremiah, we'll do anything you say. (laughs) It's like, why didn't you listen to the first 42 chapters? The change in the environment changed their internal reality. I think about when Emily and I were missionaries in Honduras, right out of college, uh, our first year married. uh, We were working in a community outside of the capital of Tegucigalpa. And uh, up in the mountains, all these folks who'd been displaced by Hurricane Mitch in the late 90s and living in poverty and... Uh, I remember this one kid who we helped tutor got in really big trouble, and there was fear that he was going to join a gang. And I remember where we were at the ministry when this group of moms stood around him. Those moms cried out to God on behalf of this kid. I think they freaked the kid out, too. They were praying with passion. But they were, they were in poverty, spiritual and, and, and you know, actual poverty. And Jesus said, they're blessed. If I were preaching this in a different context, I might put the majority of the emphasis on the the first part of this text, but considering who's in the room today, considering what's normal for the majority of us in this space, it seems like the second half of the text is what really invites our, uh, our uncomfortable attention. Because the blessing on the poor transitions to a, a woe on the rich. Because the reverse of the socioeconomic conditions has the opposite spiritual effect that it does on the poor. There's a woe on the wealthy because the accumulation of both financial and social capital, meaning you got money and people like you and praise you, the accumulation of both financial and social capital can become encumbrances to their ability to receive the message of the kingdom. Having money and being liked being popular, can be obstacles to responding to the gospel. That's what one commentator said, John Noland. He said, riches almost inescapably ensnare those who possess them. How? In a false set of values and loyalties which involve a foreshortened perspective. You get tunnel vision. You don't see what really matters in the view of eternity. 
and ensnares those who possess them in a false set of values and loyalties which involve a foreshortened perspective in which love for the things of this world proved to be greater than the desire for the kingdom of God. Jesus talks about this a lot. It actually, it's a theme, a particular theme in the Gospel of Luke. There's the story, you know, of the, uh, the parable of the sower. The sower goes out and liberally scatters seed. This is, you know, Jesus or the apostles going out and sharing the message of the kingdom of God. And, it, and they sow liberally. And it lands in all kinds of places, including among the thorns. And Jesus, in explaining the meaning of the parable, talking about the seed that landed among the thorns, that it, it began to grow, but it was choked out. Choked out by what? Jesus says the, the deceptiveness of wealth and the desire for other things. Elsewhere, he says the worries of this life and the deceptiveness of wealth chokes out responsiveness to the word. Our access to capital, whether it's social or financial capital, it can be something that chokes out our ability to respond to the gospel. You'll know as well the story of the rich young ruler, which is also in the gospel of Luke. And Jesus has a conversation with this young guy who says, I want to follow you. And Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And he perceived, because he knew the hearts of all people, he perceived there's an idol that has a stranglehold on the heart of this young man. He says, you can follow me, but first go and sell everything you own and give it to the poor and then come and follow me. And what does it say that he did? He walked away sad because he had many possessions. Chokes our response to the word. And then perhaps the most cryptic example in the Gospel of Luke, I I bet few will remember this story. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. Lazarus, and the story is a poor beggar. And in this this story, uh, this rich man in, in the age to come is given this broader perspective of how he has wasted his life on, on, on temporal wealth. And he's crying out, can I please go back and warn my family? And in the parable, it said, even if someone who came back from the dead were to warn them, they might not listen. The worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the access to both financial and social capital can be something that chokes our response to the word. Now, I think the scriptures teach us and we can, we can understand that it's not bad to be wealthy. We're going to look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, one of my favorite passages on this theme in a couple of minutes. It says, um, uh, oh, what does it say? I'll get to it later, okay? <laughs> the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. That's what it says. It's not the exclusive one, but it's a root of all kinds of evil. It's not bad to be wealthy, but to have a life with God, it is difficult to be wealthy. You're hindered. We are hindered. It's an an encumbrance. It's it's a burden. And, And if you're wondering whether you're wealthy, you are. You are. Every one of us in this room is richer than 90%, 95% of the world's population. We are, we are living in a, a quality of life that is discontinuously different than all of human history. All of us are, are wealthy. It's not bad to be wealthy, but to have a life with God, it can be difficult to be wealthy. And similarly, it's not bad to be well-known or to be well-liked. I hope to be well-liked. But in keeping a humble perspective and a grounded perspective of who you are, it is dangerous to be well-known, to be well-liked. 
to maintain purity of heart toward the things of God and an unencumbered pursuit of the Lord Jesus, it is more difficult and more dangerous if you've got material or social comforts that you're afraid to lose. This is a warning and a reality that all of us have to deal with. And everyone who aspires to live in the kingdom of God must directly confront the temptations of wealth and the traps of popularity. And we have to take seriously the prototypical story of someone like David, you know, the runt of the litter, who loved God with such a pure heart. He's the example of who we all want to be, a man after God's own heart. He does so well until he achieves such a measure of success that he can rest on his laurels. And the the text tells us in 2 Samuel, at the time when the kings go to war, David stayed at home, and that's when he saw Bathsheba and forced himself on her. He got way too comfortable. The access to financial and social capital became a chain that enslaved him, and he allowed it to lead to his own destruction. You could think of, of anyone you know. It's, you know, the easy targets are, are people who wear microphones on their faces like me. You could think of almost anyone who had a fall from grace. And it's almost always when things are moving up and to the right. When they're getting more known, they have access to more resources, when there are more and more eyes on them. We have to deal with the temptation and the trap both of, of wealth and of likability and popularity. Okay, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul's talking to a young pastor, and he wants him to stay on the straight and narrow. It's like a, a mother talking to her daughter or a father talking to his son. And he's observing how so many people are getting lured away from the faith because of the temptation of wealth and because of the desire to be popular or to be liked. And Paul instructs Timothy, he said, listen, godliness with contentment is great gain. If you're godly and you're content with what you've been given, you must understand that's profit. That's pure profit, enduring profit. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be, say this word with me, content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then hear the strength of this contrast coming with the authority of a father. But you, man of God, you, woman of God, flee from all of this. I think about the Proverbs. Wisdom is crying out, waiting for someone to listen. You, man of God, learn the lesson. If you think if you're standing strong, be careful. It's a temptation and it's a trap. Man of God, flee from all of this. Then he goes on in verse 17. You don't hear Paul use this word very often. He says to Timothy in preaching to his churches, command those who are rich not to be in the present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth. Uh, People who are rich are often in charge and don't like being bossed around. He says, with the authority of Jesus Christ, command those who are rich in the present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. And then again, he uses this word. He says, command them. 
to, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And in this way, they will lay up treasure, spelled with an A, for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I want to offer you four, five challenges for dethroning wealth and fame in your life. Five challenges. The first challenge I want to offer you is to be suspicious of the more and better script. So, you know, maybe you were in a play in middle school and you know what it's like to have a script and you memorize your lines and you follow the script. And all of us follow social scripts, you know, that are either real or imagined. Uh, you know, for me, uh, I didn't really think about where I wanted to go to college. I, my, my parents never pressured me to go to ORU, but I just kind of inherited this script that this is what I'm going to do. This is what we do. Uh, and many of us, in many other ways, we, we inherit or we think we inherit these unexamined, unreflected scripts for how we are meant to behave. You go to college. Why? So you can get a good job. Why? So you can get a good house and a good car and, you know, have a good family. But why? And there's, there is in our country this script of more and better, as, as if new is inherently virtuous and old is bad. But Paul already said godliness with contentment is great gain. Reflect, in what, reflect on your life and the ways in which you feel this pressure to get more and get better. Now, I think sanctification invites a kind of spiritual more and betterness. Uh, but we're not talking about that. We're talking about accumulation, especially in so much as it reinforces or undergirds your sense of self and your identity. And be suspicious of that script that is being thrust on you. Um, you know, it's, it's pretty eerie. All of you have had this experience where you're talking with a friend about, you know, a jacket or a, I don't know, water bottle or something. And you get a, a targeted ad within like hours for that specific thing. Like, I didn't even Google it. Like, we just talked about it in the car. Like, they're listening. They're thrusting this more and better script on it because it's profitable for them, but it is not always profitable for us. So be suspicious. One of the greatest insights of that text from 1 Timothy chapter 6 for me, for me is godliness with contentment is great gain. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation. Discontentment becomes a source of temptation. If you want to stave off the temptation, you have to cultivate contentment. When Paul wrote Philippians chapter 4, he was not thinking primarily of getting on the homecoming court or dunking when he wrote, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He was talking about, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Be suspicious of the script of more and better. The second thing, friends, I would challenge you with and urge you with is free, from loving, free yourself from loving money by giving it away. Uh, the same uh, uh, author, Noland, do I have that? Chelsea, do I have that second quote from him? It's all right if I don't. All right, we'll skip it. Um, flee from loving money by giving it away. I really love the idea that every time we give, we're telling our hearts, this is one less dollar that possesses me and owns me. We need to give it away as if our lives depended on it. Now, I'm so grateful and so blessed there are uh, so many young people in our church. What a great gift of God. And you might be thinking, when I'm older, I'm going to be generous. When I'm older and I'm, you know, get up with higher income earners, that's when I'm going to really start, you know, investing my resources in the kingdom. But you're not going to get more generous just because you get more money. You're just going to be more like what you already are. 
Uh, you know, if everyone, if everyone who called themselves a Christian tithed, even did half of a tithe and gave 5%, uh, the, the, the reality of global poverty would be drastically different. Flee from loving money by giving it away. The third thing I would encourage you with, friends, is to embrace embarrassment through confession. I heard one of the worst sermons I ever heard in my life was uh, from this, this, uh, this speaker. I heard the sermon, and he was talking about, he's trying to make the, the point, which there's a point in there. He said, embarrass sin before sin embarrasses you. And I was like, okay, does that make sense? Okay, follow me. And he illustrated this point by telling a story of a time that he was on an airplane, and he, he uh, sat down on the airplane, and um, a, a woman like wearing a really low-cut top, showing off a lot of cleavage, was seated right next to him. And remember, the point he's making is embarrass sin before sin embarrasses you. And to a very full room of people, he got up and said what he did, which was stand in the aisle, point at the woman and say, whore of Babylon, whore of Babylon. (laughs) Not what I'm talking about. I think one of the greatest things we can do for our spiritual health and to avoid, I don't know if I should have told that story, by the way. (laughs) It's like, okay, how many children under, okay. I mean, one great way to pop the balloon of ego is to tell stories like that in front of people, (laughs) is to confess your sin to other believers. I mean, I do it with with some guys in our church, and I really would rather not. It's so much easier not to. But we want to be well. You know, I'm so grateful to get to be a pastor. I'm, I'm really so grateful. I don't want to do anything stupid. And so we learn early. You don't want to do anything stupid. You don't want uh, to have some train wreck of life. Many of us have gone through that, you know, already, and God can put us back together. But if we can avoid that, we sure want to. And so I think, bad illustration, good point. We embarrass sin before it embarrasses us by confessing our sins to other believers in, in, in the safe context of Christian community. I think it's one of the most life-changing things that, that we can do is to confess our sins to each other. Who knows your secrets? Who knows your search history? Who knows your budget? With whom do you process some of the, the, the darker realities of just being a person? We need people with whom we can do this, and it's not like a huge grand occasion, but part of just the maintenance relationship of being a part of the family of God together, we embrace embarrassment through confession. I think a fourth thing, and Jesus illustrates this beautifully in the Sermon on the Mount, is to secretly meet the needs of the poor. All throughout church history, and particularly in the early centuries, it was a given that if you were a follower of Jesus, you were going to know the poor and you were going to meet the needs of the poor. This not only gave the church credibility, but it's just what we do because the Father is generous and kind to us. Uh, The the wisdom of secrecy is that it, it keeps us from getting a big ego. And part of the wisdom is being in touch with suffering and vulnerability, and that changes the way that we see the world and the way that we handle resources. And then the fifth thing that I would advise us to do to to dethrone wealth and fame in our lives is to remember and to believe the gospel and the story that the gospel tells us about the world and about ourselves. All of this instruction is not an instruction of moralism, but it's an instruction that gives us freedom. 
Because we know that in the person of Jesus Christ, value has been injected into the world. And so we don't have to fight and claw to prove to ourselves or to anyone else that we matter by accumulating wealth or fame, but anchored in our belovedness by Jesus, we can learn to live freely and lightly. And we remember the words of Scripture, remember the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for our sake He became poor, so that you, through His poverty, might become rich." If you feel your heart at war, if you are mad at me, it is not about me. Unless you're mad about the, you know, that one word that I said. We could talk about that too. But uh, pay attention to whatever the Lord is that's doing in your heart. The greater resistance that you feel to this topic, the more important it is with the help of the Holy Spirit to slay that idol and, and bring it into submission to the Lord Jesus. It's not bad to be wealthy, but it is difficult. And it's not bad to be well-liked, but it can be dangerous for our hearts. And and because of those of us who are baptized in the Lord Jesus, we know better about ourselves that we are His sons and daughters that He loves. With us, He is well-pleased, and so we don't have to fight and claw and connive to gain an identity because we've already been given one in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I remember the words of that one song, save me from the kingdom of comfort where I am king, from my unhealthy lust for material things. Uh, Jesus, we are planted in the native soil of the West, of the United States of America, and the environmental factors that that are at war on us are, are, are training our hearts to love stuff and to love attention to love likes, to love, you know, comments on our posts. And Lord, these things uh, are addicting to us. It's a dopamine hit. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And yet you didn't have a place to lay your head. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would liberate us from the deceptiveness of wealth and the desire for other things. I pray that you would free us from an addiction of being liked by other people. And I pray that salvation would come to our church like it came to Zacchaeus who did the work of financial justice and submitting to your lordship in his life by doing what's right and stewardship of his resources. Lord Jesus, in all things, may we be like you who embraced poverty, who didn't think more highly of yourself than you ought with sobriety. You measured yourself and faithfully did the ministry that your Father gave you to do and help us to be like that. As we gather around the table, pour out your Spirit on us because we need you so badly. Lord, may we be among the blessed who know just how impoverished we are apart from you. As we receive communion, may it be for us so much more than just a wafer and juice, but a means by which through the Holy Spirit we experience the power and the presence of the risen Christ, making us like him, making us love what he loves and like him in the world. Lord, do the things here that only you can do. Would you forgive the sinner? Would you heal the sick? Would you encourage those who are weary? 
Would you liberate the wallets of those who are, are enslaved to accumulation? We can live freely and lightly. All this we pray in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship and community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.